Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. The best thing about the twin onslaughts on our cinemas last week, Barbie and Oppenheimer, is how much they flew in the face of the received wisdom of Hollywood's pundits. Apart from showing that two big movies don't necessarily cancel out each other's audiences, they also prove that films with unfamiliar titles can still be successful. People were prized out of their homes to see them, even, saints be praised, queuing up for the privilege. And one of the reasons for both movies' drawing power is they seem to be about something. Name? Bond. James Bond. So you're not dead. Hello, Q. I've missed you. Blockbusters generally aren't meant to be about anything much. They claim to be the further adventures of someone from a previous hit movie, or worse, exactly the same adventure, just with a different villain. But what most of them are about is about an hour too long. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Do you guys ever think about dying? Barbie, on the other hand, was not only about feminism and girls' ambitions, it touched on the very nature of play. While Oppenheimer was taking on powers that were far too big for us and putting the world in mortal terror for the next 70 years. Oh, and good triumphing over evil along the way. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice. Because that's the thing about good movies. They ask two questions, both equally important. What's it about and what's it really about? Well, the answer to the second question is all about serious themes, I suppose. It's really about families or justice or coming of age or growing old. Life, which can be strangely merciful, had taken pity on Norma Desmond. The dream she had clung to so desperately had enfolded her. That's the side of the movie we pride ourselves in spotting, certainly. But the first question is just as important, and that's the bit about the story. What's it about? Who's it about? What happens to them? What happens next? What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse farmhouse, hen house, outhouse or dog house in this area. After all, a theme without a story is a lecture, while a story without anything underpinning it is just one damn thing after another. And this week, tucked behind the winter blockbusters, three little movies that try to offer a little more than just more of the same. So, as you know, the autopsy report is uh, inconclusive about the cause of death. Stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. 
There's this year's winner at Cannes that's just opened the International Film Festival here, Anatomy of a Fall. There's a sweet little Irish tale of four women going to Lourdes, the Miracle Club, and a Guy Ritchie war movie with a bitter aftertaste that's popped up on Prime Video, The Covenant. That is not how this debt works. It demands a result, not an appeasement. This is in contrast with the sort of thing that's been coming out recently on the streaming services, like a would-be action comedy currently showing on Netflix. Everything okay in there, baby? I'm just an average man with an average life. Where the money at? They cloned Tyrone as the sort of film the Hollywood studios threaten their employees with when they get above themselves. We're only hiring you as a favour, they say. Movies can make themselves. This one certainly seems to have. I'm an entrepreneur. I work in the spirit of the pimp game. You know your girl gotta know what's going on in these streets. I assume the slumming stars, Englishman John Boyega and Oscar winner Jamie Foxx, were persuaded it was going to be a popular romp. Imagine a cool, R-rated version of the old Nancy Drew mysteries, they were told. Well, the biggest mystery to be solved by a film like They Cloned Tyrone is how it got funded at all. Excuse me, kind sir, but if you could pour me to the elevator that leads down to the Fiki Laboratory... Don't let the back door I'll be out your atmosphere. Let's get my Funding is less of a mystery in France, where the movies are still treated as an art form and are supported accordingly. So a movie like Anatomy of a Fall not only gets made, but receives the palm d'or at Cannes this year. When you say that you prefer to go, is the day when your father died? No, not at all. I just wanted to go and go. Okay. Tu m'as dit que tu avais entendu tes parents, maman, t'es sorti de la maison, c'est ça Tu te souviens du genre de conversation qu'ils avaient Oui, à peu près, c'était pas une dispute. For me, the description winner of the Palm d'Or is a bit of a mixed blessing. Prestigious, certainly, but not necessarily a guarantee of a great night at the movies. For every personal favourites like I, Daniel Blake and Shoplifters, there's an equal number of pretentious rotters like The Square and Titan, which you may remember was essentially Transformers as directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Fortunately, this year's Anatomy of a Fall, directed by Justine Trier, is one of the good ones. It was also picked to open this year's International Film Festival. At two and a half hours, it was a bit of a challenge for an audience looking forward to the subsequent festival party, but it was a challenge triumphantly accepted. You said you heard your parents, Mom, you're out of the house, right? En fait, j'entendais pas vraiment les mots, j'avais que des bouts de voix, mais ça faisait... Ah, oui, mais non, si t'avais pas les mots, du coup, tu peux pas savoir si c'est une dispute ou pas. Enfin, je sais, je sais ce que j'ai entendu. The film opens with novelist Sandra being interviewed at her home in the French Pyrenees. She's German, but while she speaks French, she feels more comfortable speaking English. The interview is curtailed when upstairs Sandra's neurotic husband starts playing music too loud. The journalist leaves, and so does Sandra and Samuel's 11-year-old son, Daniel, who knows there's going to be a fight shortly. 
Daniel is sight impaired, though he knows his way around the mountain chalet where the family live. And he's the one who discovers the body of his father after he fell from the top floor. The question being, did he fall or was he pushed? Vous admettez qu'il était jaloux? No, I don't know. No. Allez, écoutez-vous, on a l'impression que vous l'avez trompé continuellement. Quand il commence à se reprocher des trucs, moi je préfère mon aller. Tu peux pas me dire qui était le plus énervé des deux? No. The police questioned Daniel, and the next step, of course, is a trial. If Daniel was out, the only other person in the house at the time was Sandra. Now, what happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And in the end, does it matter? The only thing that matters to Sandra's lawyer and friend, Vincent, is what can they prove? So, as you know, the autopsy report is uh, inconclusive about the cause of death. Stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. Most of the film is a courtroom drama, though a trial in France is rather different from what we're used to from American or English films. But even before we reach the courthouse, we're intrigued by the three key figures in Anatomy of a Fall, particularly Sandra herself, played by German star Sandra Hüller. Il parle de tromperie. I was honest about it. Mais vous l'avez pas été l'année de sa mort avec cette fille avec qui vous l'avez trompé, pourquoi Il y a quand même quelque chose d'un peu étrange dans cette situation. Sandra Hula, you may remember, played the put-upon daughter in the Oscar nominee Tony Erdman. Here, she's very much in control. For a start, she insists on testifying in English. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. But, I don't know, you, you, you come here, okay, with your, maybe your opinion, and you tell me who Samuel was and what we were going through. Less prickly and more likeable is Vincent, whose support for Sandra lends her a warmth she certainly doesn't show with her husband. And finally, there's the son Daniel, a blind, unreliable witness played brilliantly by young Milo Machado Grane. Oh, moi, moi, ça va. Ça va? OK. On reprend. Tu m'as pas répondu quand tes parents se disputaient. Comment ça se passait? C'est-à-dire? Enfin, j'ai pas vraiment de souvenirs de disputes. Almost suspiciously brilliantly at times, his shifting evidence as the film progresses is what the trial will depend on. If he's lying, is it to protect his mother or the reputation of his dead father? As the title suggests, Anatomy of a Fall is a meticulous investigation, as much about the marriage of Sandra and Samuel as it is about the few minutes leading up to the fatal fall. But what you say is just... Uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation, you know. I mean, sometimes, sometimes a couple is kind of a chaos. Sandra Hula's performance is fascinating. You're reminded of the sort of difficult women played by Kate Blanchett or Tilda Swinton. The heart of this one is she's a writer, a writer used to plundering her life and the life of her family as raw material for her novels. Everybody is lost, no? And sometimes we fight together and sometimes we fight alone and sometimes we, we fight against each other. That happens. Complicating matters, Sandra's success meant that Samuel found himself trapped in the role of house husband. He was mostly responsible for the upbringing of young Daniel. It was his idea to return to his French homeland to live. But what Samuel wanted to do was create his own novels. 
Um, now, looking for a stranger who walks in, kills him while you were sleeping right above and Daniel was up for a walk is a shitty strategy. Samuel had no enemies. That Stop. Make- Stop. The aggressive prosecutor in the trial insists there was a violent fight spurred by Samuel's professional jealousy and Sandra's selfish promiscuity. When Sandra denies this, the prosecutor produces an unexpected ace in the hole. Samuel had recorded many of their angry arguments. Est-ce que vous pouvez nous dire à quoi il fait référence quand il parle du pillage de son œuvre? That's not true. Vous aviez déjà frappé votre mari? Non. Non, jamais. C'est bien ce qui s'est passé. Clearly, trials are conducted differently in France. Evidence seems to be produced without warning. The defendant may be grilled in the middle of another witness's testimony. The judge plays a far more active role throughout. But like all great courtroom dramas, the final verdict isn't necessarily the end of the story. The trial may be the anatomy of a fall, but it's also the analysis of a particular marriage between two real flawed people. It's possible that somewhere needed to see things the way you described them, but if, if I'd been seeing a therapist, he could stand here too and say very ugly things about Samuel, but would those things be true? In a routine Hollywood film, likability is often the important thing in a romantic couple, but this is France. What counts in a French film is humanity. You don't necessarily have to like them. But as they say, tout comprendre, c'est tout pardonner. When you understand it all, you can forgive everything. T'as pas pu les entendre si parler comme maman. J'ai confondu. T'as confondu. There's a little Irish film out this week that harks back to a faith-based Hollywood film from a more innocent time, The Song of Bernadette. The story of the young girl whose visions turned the little French town of Lourdes into a Catholic pilgrimage site opened with the famous line, For those who believe, no explanation is necessary. For those who don't, no explanation is sufficient. In the cave of Masabiel, it possibly doesn't help that the clumsy trailer for the Miracle Club reflects the film's low budget. It's barely sufficient, apart from showing off its surprisingly star-studded cast. Laura Lenny, Stephen Ray, Kathy Bates and Dame Maggie Smith. Ladies, what's the name? The Miracles. First prize, two tickets to Lourdes. Best of luck. He's so fine. The story opens with Kathy, Maggie, and their young friend Dolly entering a singing competition. First prize, a trip to Lourdes. Dolly's young son Daniel can't or won't speak. What she needs is a miracle, though. Maggie Smith's backing vocals are already the work of a higher power, you'd think. What do you want to be going to Lourdes for anyway? I always wanted to go there. If you go out that door, don't even bother coming back. Miracles happen there. He could speak. There seem to be only two tickets on offer in the competition, but you can rest assured they'll end up being enough to allow everyone to get on the bus in time. 
As always, in this sort of film, there have to be four women, and here comes number four of the Miracle Club, Chrissy, played by Laura Linney. Why did you leave? Leave? I was banished, Eileen. I loved you, and you left. I'm glad you came home. Can you ever forgive me? Laura Linney is one of America's finest actresses, particularly in a corner. The fact that she was terrific in Love Actually should give you some idea of her skills. She's equally good here, playing a woman who left the village under a mysterious cloud and only came back for her mother's funeral. How are you, Chrissy? My mother is dead. I'm in a place I swore I would never come back to. Hi. I wouldn't have recognized you. Forty years would do that to you. I'd say, yeah, mixed. Yes, but it's great to have her back. Marvellous. Bloody marvellous. Chrissy and Lillian Eileen, Maggie Smith and Kathy Bates, clearly have history. And despite the best efforts of lovable Father Dermot, any chance of reconciliation, well, frankly, it's going to take a miracle. And while we struggle to think how the plot is going to push this along, the three erstwhile miracles are farewelling those useless 60s husbands of theirs before anything goes wrong. Congratulations. You're coming to Lourdes. Who's going to have to do the cooking and the cleaning? Not me, I can tell you. That's your job. What will I do on my own? I'll be back before you know it. You will. Then it's all on the bus. Lily and Eileen, Chrissy waving her late mother's ticket to Lourdes, and finally at the last minute, Dolly and young Daniel. Next stop, St Bernadette's Grotto. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Welcome to Lourdes. Here as I am sharing with you. <laughs> Is there only one bed? Your mum wouldn't have fussed. I am not my mother. Ain't that the truth? You probably didn't need to be told that, aside from young, silent Daniel, everyone else on the bus is praying for their own particular miracle. Though, as is the way in films like this, what they think they want isn't necessarily what they'll get, or even what they need. That's where she appeared. Right there. She told everyone to come and bathe. I said, it's better count. Oh, no, it's a miracle. Oh. Ah! We're ready. I'm not... Now, speaking as a member of the more sceptical half of the Song of Bernadette audience, my interest in Lourdes was driven more by curiosity than based on faith. This is clearly a story for a Catholic audience, but not exclusively. It's rather better than I was expecting, with that added value that great actors can slip into a script when it's not looking. You don't come to Lourdes for a miracle, Eileen. You come for the strength to go on when there is no miracle. You're still alive. <laughs> Just about... <laughs> Kathy Bates, Maggie Smith and Laura Linney aren't the sort of performers to simply phone it in, assuming their fans will come along anyway. They will come along anyway as it happens, but they'll come out of the cinema piping their eyes happily rather than changing the subject. I don't need a cure. Not everyone goes to Lourdes for a cure. I'm out and I'm running out of chances. Church is good at guilt. It's also good at forgiveness. There are secrets and lies. The backstory of Chrissy's ignominious exit from the village all those years ago is the one that elicits both guilt and forgiveness before the end. And there are lovely performances by relative unknown Agnes O'Casey as Dolly and young Eric Smith as the silent Daniel. And there's always hope. Peace. That's what I hope for. I think I had me a miracle. Well, 
I actually missed you. Are they enough to forgive the flagrant sentimentality the Miracle Club often slips into or the broad Irish clowning of the dopey husbands? Well, call me a cockeyed optimist or a self-hating agnostic, but at the end I almost think they are, even if, for the rest of you, no explanation may be sufficient. Did your wife pass away on you? She's in Lourdes. There's a miracle for her. You, shopping. You don't associate British director Guy Ritchie with much subtlety. Ever since he first assaulted our consciousness with violent romps like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, he's made it plain that he's here to entertain his audience, and that's it. War film The Covenant is certainly one from the Ritchie playbook. You still don't remember a thing? I don't remember any of it. I only remember the interpreter. But there's a hint of a little more than you might expect. Maybe that's why, despite what it says in the trailers, The Covenant isn't, in fact, showing at a theatre near you, but only on Prime Video. It takes place at the height of the Afghan war, when nearly 100,000 American troops were brought in to battle the Taliban. Men like John Kinley, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. John, you have tallies approaching. John's on the hunt for Taliban bomb makers and he's about to take on a new Afghan interpreter, Ahmed. Interpreters were vital in the war in Afghanistan, though their treatment by both sides was often hostile. The reason many of them took the job in the first place was to be eligible for special immigration visas to the US. Why you want this job? I need the money. Don't disappoint turn out to be a pain in the ass. No, not me, sir. Money isn't the reason he wants this job. The Taliban killed his son. Ahmed and John don't particularly get on. Ahmed thinks John knows nothing about Afghanistan and its people. John thinks Ahmed is arrogant and insubordinate. Well, they're both right. Things come to a head when John overrides Ahmed's advice and drives his squad straight into a Taliban ambush. Stop the vehicle, Sergeant. We don't want to go down this road. You're out of your bounds, Ahmed. You're here to translate. Actually, I'm here to interpret. John, you have tallies approaching. The squad is all but wiped out. John himself is knocked out and about to be dragged off by the Taliban when Ahmed comes to his rescue. He then spends a sizable chunk of the movie dragging the unconscious John on foot over treacherous terrain, hotly pursued by fanatical bad guys. Well, back down. For three weeks, this family believed you were dead. Just as we're wondering whose movie this is, Jake Gyllenhaal wakes up at home where he learns that the heroic interpreter is stuck back in Afghanistan, hiding out with his wife and young baby with a Taliban price on his head. What happened to that special visa and the free trip back to the States, he wonders? There wasn't enough room to carry me across those mountains. Now he's hiding in a hole somewhere. I should be in that hole. You could stand me 
Jack rings around and in turn gets the runaround from the authorities. Nobody seems to know where Ahmed is, or for that matter, the visa he was promised. John is furious. Didn't the US Army make a promise to Ahmed, or if you prefer, a covenant? Everything all right, John? No, everything's not all right. There is a hook in me. Ahmed and his family are in trouble. We can't intervene. Gonna have to get him out myself. Realising that a man's got to do what a man's got to do, Jack takes off back into harm's way to hook up with a well known freelance over there called Parker. Parker's played by a well known New Zealand freelance over in Hollywood, Anthony Starr, who tells him he can't help. Listen, you're gonna be alone. You gotta adapt. Here's what you got. If you can give me the location, if I can get him out of the country, it's too dangerous. That's right, this is Jake Gyllenhaal's movie star. Having handed much of the first half of The Covenant to Ahmed, Jake's not giving the second half to some Kiwi chancer. So, with the Taliban on his heels, Jack's off into darkest Afghanistan with only a gun, unlimited ammo, and a phone for calling home. You've become very popular with the Taliban. Okay, it's easy to sneer, perhaps, at the Covenant with its unsophisticated take on a wretched war and a character only slightly more substantial than if Jason Statham had played him. And yet Gyllenhaal is rather good here. Those soulful eyes really sell the idea that he owes Ahmed. In fact, the whole US Army owes all the Ahmeds that they treated so shabbily when they finally left Afghanistan to the Taliban. There's a final shot in the Covenant after writers triumphed and the noble American soldier and the heroic Afghan interpreter get what they deserve to the applause of their grateful colleagues. Jake Gyllenhaal looks down the barrel of Guy Ritchie's camera with an expression that clearly says, this never happened. It should have, but it didn't. You think if I could be free of this debt, I wouldn't be? You think I have a choice? There is no choice. No, I won't back down. Guy Ritchie, for that one shot alone, you count as a real director. Someone who can give a genre piece like The Covenant a little extra meaning, even if it did rob it of a theatre screening. But perhaps it'll reach more people on Prime Video than it would have in competition with Barbie. And on that suggestion that somehow a film goes where it's meant to go after all, it's time for us to go too. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.